you will see in your outline that today's sermon is called Sola Fide. It's Latin, uh, and it's Latin for faith alone. And it is a Latin slogan that came from uh, the time of the Reformation, the time when God, um, through raising up some leaders uh, that we call the Reformers, rediscovered the gospel. Because there was a period in time in church history when the gospel was lost, when the the saving message of uh, what Christ has done to free us from sin and guilt, uh, it was lost. It was obscured in tradition and ritual and practices. But God raised up people who went back to the Bible and the gospel was rediscovered. And so there were these slogans, uh, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Scriptura. Okay, so Sola Fide means faith alone. Sola gratia means grace alone. Sola scriptura means it's scripture alone. Now you uh, would not be blamed if you wonder. There are so many alones. Like, you know, okay, one alone, that's fine. But then how can you have three things that are alone? Well, the reason is because it's alone uh, in a different sense. So sola scriptura, scripture alone. It is scripture alone that has final authority. And grace alone, grace alone is the ultimate reason why we receive all of the benefits of salvation. Uh, It's not because we have earned it, not by merit, it is all by grace alone. And so faith alone, faith alone says this is the way we receive it. We do not receive it by any other means. It's not faith plus something, it is faith alone. And this chapter that we are spending our time on. Uh, We'll be talking a lot on faith. And so my aim is to be as clear and as simple and as straightforward, you know, in explaining the text so that all of us understand what saving faith is. Now, this is not something to be taken for granted because I have I worked with many generations of students, and uh, whether I'm doing an evangelism course with them or some evangelistic Bible study, I always get to the point where they need to tell me, if a non-Christian friend comes to you and says, okay, okay, I want to believe in Jesus, what must I do? And then I say to them, how are you going to explain what it means to have faith? And nine out of ten stumble. And we're talking about you know, students that are, you know, they're smart, they've spent many years in church, these are not like brand new greenhorn Christians, but many students, and I'm sure many of us here, would actually stumble when posed that way. So I want to be very clear what the Bible teaches about saving faith, so that we can have it, so that we can explain to others what it means to have that faith that saves, that faith that is alone, that receives that salvation, that grace alone gives. So please join me as we ask God to help us. Father, we acknowledge that it all comes out of your grace. And your scripture is the final authority that reveals these truths to us. So we humbly bow before you. Uh, Would you not only in your graciousness in revealing it in the scriptures, but please in your graciousness and kindness to us, so reveal it to our hearts 
that we may see more deeply these truths. And if there's any one of us here that at this moment is still without saving faith, Father, please, as you unveil these truths of what you have done in Christ for our salvation, please grant that saving faith because it is all from your hand. So we look to you and we trust in your good work in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Now I want to say something about the structure of this passage. At the end of chapter 3, Paul makes statements. Okay, Statements like verse 27 and 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? Now, okay, I know, you might say, hey, it's not statements, it's questions. Okay, okay. But these are rhetorical questions that are making a statement. Okay? Um, the law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So he's made these statements. And in chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, he will back it up. Okay, so you see the statements of verse 27 and 28 of chapter 3, Paul will argue for and back up and give support for in chapter 4, 1 to 8. And then the next statements, verse 29 and 30 of chapter 3, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So now he's talking about how this righteousness by faith, it is not by works, it is by faith, and it is by faith for both Jews and Gentiles. So he's, he's making the statements and he will back it up, he will argue for it in chapter 4, 9 to 12. And 13 to 17a. So we will look at the 9 to 12 bit today. And then 13 to 17 onwards, we will look at next week. Okay, but I need you to understand the structure. Statements he makes in chapter 3, he backs up in chapter 4. And so we come to the last verse of um, chapter 3. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. You see, all that Paul has been saying about it is faith alone, not by works of the law. Jew, Gentile, justified in the same way. The, the, the Jewish congregation, Jewish part of his audience, would have become very uncomfortable. They would be stunned. They would be thinking, hey, then what about the Old Testament? Why, why then did God give us the law? Are you then contradicting all that the Old Testament says? So Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not nullifying the law. And by law here, he means the scriptures. I'm not nullifying our scriptures, the Old Testament. Rather, justification by faith alone. To be declared righteous by faith alone, that upholds the law. And it upholds the law because this is all that the Old Testament has been about and is what the Old Testament has been pointing towards. And so, by talking about the scriptures, Paul will now in chapter 4 talk about quoting Genesis and quoting the Psalms, talking about Abraham and talking about David. So he goes to Abraham. Remember, verse 1 to 8, he is backing up his verse 27 and 28 of chapter 3. 
And he goes to Abraham to show that he is not nullifying the law. This, this being declared righteous by faith is not some newfangled thing that you know, Paul is declaring. Rather, he wants to show from the case of Abraham that God has always, right from the beginning, justified by faith. And it is a masterstroke. Like brilliant for Paul to go to Abraham because Abraham, I mean, all the Jews look up to Abraham. Abraham would settle everything. And Abraham, because he is the patriarch of the nation, Abraham, he's the, he's the father of the Jews, by going to Abraham and showing that Abraham was indeed justified by faith, Paul shows that he is not nullifying, but upholding the law. So he says, chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? You see, from the question, he says, our forefather, according to the flesh, you see he is talking about, or talking to, addressing the Jews. And because he wouldn't call Gentiles our, Abraham's our forefather. He's talking to the Jews. Okay, This side you'll be the Jewish part. Okay? So he's, he's addressing the Jews, our forefather, Abraham. What did he discover? You see, verse 2, if in fact, Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. You see, he comes back to this theme of boasting that he has brought up in verse 27. Where then is boasting? And then the rhetorical question deserves the answer, no place. And then now with Abraham, he also brings up, Abraham, did Abraham have something to boast about? And the answer is no, because before God, he had nothing to boast about. Now the question is, why does Paul address the issue of boasting in verse 27, okay, chapter 3? Because, okay, because chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, okay, what we looked at last week, what Nick preached for us, that is what Martin Luther considered the center of Romans and the center of the whole Bible. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26 could arguably be the most important passage in the whole Bible. That's what Martin Luther is saying. Many people agree with him. When we are at Romans 3, 21 to 26, it is as if we are on the Mount Everest of scriptures. On that peak, we see everything. There is no greater climax than, than what God has revealed for us because it goes right to the heart of what was done for us on the cross. Without that passage, we would lose a significant amount of understanding of what was accomplished on the cross for our sake. So, after that most important passage, the next thing he says is, where then is boasting? So my question is, why? Why does he address boasting right after the most important passage in the whole Bible? Because the, whole, the most important passage in the whole Bible tells us that we are declared righteous by faith. So without this faith, we would not receive God's declaration of us as righteous. We would not be in that right relationship with God. Now, how do you know if you have this faith? Well, Paul gets to the heart of the issue by saying, if there's any boasting in your heart of you 
earning something or doing something of something because of who you are, you can bring before God to be in the right. If there's any of that sort of boasting, then you can be very sure you have a what's the word I'm looking for? Deficient, a deficient faith. You get it? If it's by faith alone that we are declared righteous, then there is no place for boasting. And so if there's any boast in our heart, if there's any work I do or any part of me that I place confidence in to appear before God, then there is a deficient faith in my heart. And so Paul gets right to the issue because saving faith is so important. So he talks about how we can know if we have true and genuine saving faith. So, what is faith? What is faith? Well, to do that, I need to come down. I need to come down and I need to use this chair illustration. When I hit the thing, it's as if the mic's not working. Okay, I'll keep going on. Okay, saving faith can be explained this way. Okay, this is an illustration that's been used by many, many different generations of Christians. And uh, I, I found it very helpful. Okay, you can say to this chair, okay, Audrey, do you see this chair? Okay, Audrey, do you believe that this chair can... Ho- okay, maybe I shouldn't ask Audrey. Uh, Yongkiet, okay, Yongkiet. <laughs> Yongkiet, do you see this chair? Okay, yes. do, you, do, you, do you believe this chair can hold your weight? Yes. Okay, now, does Yongkiet have faith in the chair? No. <laughs> no. Yes or no? No. Okay, answer is No. Because you can say to the cows come home, yes, 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 I believe this chair. I can be a salesman of this chair. I can say, see, this chair, this chair can take my weight. Now, this chair is well constructed. It can take two of me. But as long as I'm only doing this, as long as Yongkiet is still sitting on that chair and not this chair, Yongkiet and I do not have faith in this chair. Okay, now, then person A. Okay, person A comes, and this is person A. Okay. okay, this person. Then consider person B. Okay, person B is over there. Okay, person B. Okay, this person B. Okay, so A or B, who had faith in the chair? Wow, very good, man. So many generations of students, I do this, they will always say B or A, or none. Okay, answer is both, right? Because both sat on the chair. Okay, even though one examined this and that, one was very skeptical, but faith is about entrusting about relying, about depending. Saving faith on Christ is relying, trusting on Christ, trusting on Him. And wait, the whole question of my sin and penalty and salvation and eternity on Him and on Him alone. That is what the Bible considers saving faith. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what emotions I have. Saving faith is have I entrusted. Have I leaned on? Have I relied? Am I depending on Christ and Christ alone to save me? That is saving faith. 
So back to Abraham. So he's dealing with Abraham because he wants to show right from the beginning, all the way, God has always justified by faith. So in verse 3, Paul gives his key text that we read in uh, the responsive reading. But I hope you realize when we went from Genesis 15 and when we continued Genesis 17, uh, Okay, next service must tell them exactly when 15 finishes and then 17 begins. Okay, so Genesis 15, Abraham goes to God and he's like, I'm still childless, this and that. You know, the promise you made to me in Genesis 12, I I, I still don't have a child. You know, my, my, my head servant, he'll be my heir. And then God says, no, no, no. My promise will come good. And then it's probably at night and God brings him out and, and shows him the night sky. You know, count the stars. This will be the number of descendants you have. And so, if you're a Christian, God is saying, hey, you are a star. Okay, it's a joke, never mind. <laughs> um, but okay, Abraham sees and Abraham believes. And so, the text tells us, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, now we need to be very clear what verse 3 is saying. Okay. Verse 3 is not saying that Abraham offered God his faith. God took the faith and in return gave Abraham righteousness. As if the faith was some good deed or the faith was something righteous in and of itself. That When Abraham offered it to God, God in return gave Abraham righteousness. Okay. It is not something that God rewarded or gave to Abraham as a reward for his faith. Okay, rather, the text is telling us, Abraham, he heard the promise of God and he believed God's word. He believed God, believed his promise. He had faith in God. And God, because of his grace, the word is credited or counted. Okay, you will recognize that it is an accounting term. It's as if God deposited money into Abraham's account. Okay? And that affected Abraham's status. He was now righteous, declared righteous. He wasn't in his character righteous because the ensuing chapters of Genesis will show that he is not righteous. He still sins, he still makes mistakes. But he is given the status of righteousness. Now, by the way, that is what justification is. To be declared righteous, it is affecting our status and not our state. Okay, And so God sees the faith of Abraham and in grace credits this righteousness to Abraham. Now, there's a, there's a question here, which is, in chapter 3, Paul uses the language of justification to be declared righteous, and that is from the law court, law court language. In chapter 4, Abraham focuses on this language from the accounting world, credit righteousness. Now, and Paul obviously means for these two things to be the same. But when you talk about credit righteousness, I mean, if, if God is depositing money into Abraham's account, where did the money come from? Where did this righteousness come from that God is crediting into Abraham's account? Okay, where did it come from? 
Well, the answer is in the later part of the chapter, so we'll look at it next week. But I leave that question with you. And it is important because why does he shift from using law court language in chapter 3 and shift to using this accounting language in chapter 4? So that's an answer that we will answer, a question that we'll answer next week. So that's his key text. Abraham believed and God credited. And then in verses 4 and 5, Paul uses an illustration. Right? To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. See, when I receive my paycheck from Zen Yang, I do say thank you because he's the one that passed me the check. But it's not like, hey, what is this for? Hey, why, why, why? You know, because I've earned it. I've worked many hours and the paycheck that I get end of the day, the paycheck that you get end of the day, is because you have worked and you have earned the wages. And so BTPC is obligated to pay me because I have worked. Your company, your boss, is obligated to give you the wages because you have worked. And so Paul is saying that's the difference between working and by faith. When it is by faith, God is not obligated, but he gives it out of grace. Now you need to understand the great difference between faith and work. Okay, Just imagine you are the boss of a company. Let me ask you, how much money would you pay an employee whose sole, only job, his only function in a company is to have faith in a company. I mean, he just sits there in the office all day and he's just... You know? He doesn't do anything because his main and only job is to have faith. How much would you pay the employee? I, I venture to guess nothing, right? So faith, God... He's not obligated to give, but out of his grace, he gives. He credits righteousness. He credit righteousness? The ungodly. It is the ungodly who need this righteousness, and God gives. See, so the difference between work is when the person works, and God sees his works. Oh, this is how much you obey the law. Okay, then I, in turn, give you righteousness. God is obligated to, okay, this guy is righteous, okay, because he's worked so much. Now, in that scenario, that person possesses an intrinsic righteousness. He has an inherent righteousness to himself. He has, he's made himself righteous. He's obeyed these laws. He's worked this hard. God says, ah, you are this righteous. He has an intrinsic righteousness. But to the one who simply believes God, believes his promise, and God credits righteousness, the righteousness that this person possesses is an alien righteousness. It is not intrinsic to himself. It comes from outside. It is a passive righteousness. It is God looking at a person who is ungodly, but because he has credited the righteousness from somewhere, now sees that person, treats that person, accepts that person as righteous. See, the difference between Intrinsic, inherent, and alien. 
Okay, now I know, okay, this sign, for some people, you can get, some people cannot. But I need to say all this because um, this doctrine is being threatened. So you need to know what Christians have historically believed in from texts like this. So that when you encounter it in the workplace with other church friends, whatever, Christian friends, uh, and they say something, and eh, eh, you seem to be doubting alien righteousness, imputed righteousness. Ah, then you can be aware of what's happening. Okay, so Abraham is justified by an inherent righteousness. Now, so he now gives in verses 6 to 8 additional support from David. So he says about David that David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness. Okay, look at how Paul prefaces Verse 7 and 8. He says that David experienced God crediting righteousness. Right? You look at verse 6. David experiences that. But when you look at verse 7 and 8, David doesn't actually say that. Hmm? Okay? Verse 6, Paul says David experienced crediting of righteousness. But when he actually quotes David in verse 7 and 8, David doesn't actually say that. What does David say? David says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. See, David seems to be saying, I owe God this debt, but God doesn't make me pay. God doesn't count my debt against me. Right? My sins are covered. My sins are not counted against me. That's great, but that's very different from God crediting. Okay, you owe me a million dollars. Okay, swa, never mind. I don't make you pay. That what? That's what David is saying, verse seven and eight. But Paul actually says, verse six, that David experienced God crediting the one billion dollars to him. Okay, so is Paul being, you know, being doing a sleight of hand with uh, Psalm thirty-two? Okay, answer obviously is. No, of course, we, I agree with Paul. I agree with Paul. But where do we see this crediting of righteousness? We see it in the word blessed. Blessed. See, some modern translations want to translate blessed as happy. Happy is the one whose you know, sins are forgiven, all that. No, no, that is a very, very weak translation of the word. The word... Um, in the original, the word in the Old Testament means something far greater than just being happy. Now you might uh, recognize this uh, passage from uh, Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now you need to recognize that the Lord bless you. Bless you in what way? Bless you in that His face shines on you. Bless you in that His His turning His face toward you, His giving you peace. You see, the blessing in the Bible, the blessing in the Old Testament, the blessedness is of having God being in His presence and not cast away from Him. And so obviously it is the righteous person, the person that has been credited righteousness, that can be in the presence of God, that God will turn his face toward, his face will shine on that person. So Paul is absolutely right when he says 
David also experienced this crediting of righteousness because David looked to God. David sought God and God alone. So Paul has finished explaining that righteousness by faith, not by works. Okay, so I still want to hammer a bit on this. Do we understand uh, what saving faith is? Okay, so in the evangelism explosion course, there's a question that uh, you, know, you, you are told to ask people, and that is, if you were to die tonight, and you appear you know, on the gates of heaven, and God asks you, or you know, angel asks you, what right do you have to enter in? Why should I let you in? Okay, and then, uh, even when you ask people who come from Christian background, even when you ask people who are confessing Christians, they will give answers like this, okay? So A, okay, the Christian can give this answer, because I've tried my best to be a good, good Christian. Okay, these, I mean, these are genuine answers, okay? So why should I let you in? The person says, oh, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Then uh, another person, another Christian will answer, because I believe in God and I have tried my best to obey Him. Okay, that's the second version of it, second type of answers people give. And then the third is, because I believe in God with all my heart. Okay, so which one is the expression of a person having saving faith? A, A is, I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Okay, so that one obviously not. Because that one is, I've tried my best, I've done all this work. Okay, the person is thinking about, I should be saved, I should enter because of my works. The second type of answer, because I believe in God and try my best to obey Him. This one is salvation by faith and works. See, it's not sola fide. It's not faith alone. Okay, so... B, definitely out. Okay, that means C, lah. Is C correct? Because I believe in God with all my heart. Okay, is that one correct? Huh? No, the God of the Bible, lah. Believe in God, believe in Jesus with all my heart. Okay, would that be correct? Okay. Okay, the person might still be saved, but, but answering it that way reveals the person is actually having faith in his faith. He's trusting in his trust. You see, it is, that's why I say, I want to be clear and simple, I want to hammer home this one objective that we understand what saving faith is. Because when I have faith in the chair, okay, when I'm not just sitting, but when I'm standing on the chair, okay, you can see clearly that what is holding me up is not my faith. It is not my faith that is holding me up. What is holding me up is the chair. And so when we place faith in Christ, it is not my faith that saves me. It is because I have placed faith in the only one who has gone through facing the wrath of God so that it's taken away from me, so that my sins can be forgiven. I have place my faith in the only one who can save me. So even option C, the third one, is deficient because that is placing trust in trust. Now the only right answer is because 
of Jesus, my Savior, who has borne my sins, totally extinguished the wrath of God that I deserve. He has taken it all. He has paid for it all. So I am now having the righteousness that can enter heaven. That is the only answer. Now, I still want to keep hammering at this because it's so important. Okay, if the chair illustration doesn't work for you, then think of uh, yourself being a beggar. And as a beggar, you have nothing. Okay, that's why you're begging. So faith is like that empty hand. The empty hand of the beggar that receives God's gift. Okay? If I do not receive it, I do not have it. Like the person can want to give, but if I don't stretch out my hand to receive it, it means I don't have it. But when I have my hands outstretched and I do receive it, I receive it because a generous, gracious giver gave it to me. See, if there isn't a gracious giver, no matter how much we hold up our empty hands, it will still remain empty. But when our empty hands, when our, 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 our beggar's hands are filled, graciously, generously, we do not go, hey, wow, you see how well I held my hand? Because I held my hand this way. You held your hand this way. Ah, that's why I receive. No, no, we don't draw attention the meritorious way in which we held out our hands. But if our empty hands were filled, we give praise to the one who generously, graciously filled our hands. See, that's why the song is nothing in my hand I bring. It is simply to the cross I cling. See, saving faith. I am not saved without it. See, without saving faith, without receiving it, I am not saved. But I am not saved because of it. I am saved because of what Christ has done in my place for me. So righteousness is by faith alone, not by works. And it is by saving faith. Not some pale, corrupted version uh, that comes across as faith. Next, Paul moves on to how Jew and Gentile alike how they are both justified by faith. And uh, this is verses 9 to 12. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or, or, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Okay, so he's addressing the question. Jew, Gentile, are they alike justified by faith? And the answer is, of course, they are alike. Why? Because when Abraham, in Genesis 15, when he was justified, when God credited righteousness to him, Abraham was still a Gentile. See, he's the father of the Jews, he's the patriarch of the nation, but when he was credited righteousness, Genesis 15, he was still a Gentile. Why? Because it's only in chapter 17 that he is given the sign and circumcised. So if Abraham 
when he was created righteousness, was himself a Gentile, then for sure, God is the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles alike receive righteousness by faith. Verse 11, And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So this circumcision is not what makes him righteous. It is a sign that he had received righteousness. Okay, it's just like a, a wedding ring. And it's just like my old church friend, Dennis, uh, who, you know, when I met him, must have been married like 10, 12 years, but he doesn't wear a wedding ring. Okay, so, uh, and that's the reason, uh, reason is because he's a surgeon, and the surgeon, he always has to take it out, so he, he's just gone without it. Okay, he doesn't wear a wedding ring. But the reality is, he is married right, with two daughters. Just because he doesn't have the sign of it, does not take away the fact that he is married. And so, you know, after his job as a surgeon is done, you know, after he retires, he might put it back on, if it still fits, you know. Um, yeah, but, you know, it, he, he'll have then gone on 30 years without wearing the ring. Just like Abraham, he was first justified, but then 14 years later in Genesis 17, then he received a sign. But the sign is only pointing at the reality that had happened 14 years before. So don't confuse the sign with that which it points to. And we can easily do that with the Christian version of baptism, which is uh, the Christian version of circumcision, which is baptism. So in the Old Testament, the sign of being justified was circumcision, but thankfully, guys, Thankfully, okay, the New Testament version is not circumcision, but baptism. And so, just because a person is not baptized, doesn't mean he hasn't been justified. And the same way, just because a person is baptized, also doesn't mean he is justified. Do not confuse the sign with that it signifies. So, Paul comes to his uh, conclusion, okay, uh, in the middle of verse 11 and 12, okay, I, and, and even when, uh, you know, Jane, who is such a good reader, when she was reading it, I mean, there were points at which she stumbled, right? Because, okay, it is not a short sentence. Okay, so let me just, I mean, okay, I want to assume that some people don't get it. So I want to, okay, get across clearly what Paul is saying there. So the middle of verse 11, his big conclusion. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised. So there's a half of the world are Gentile. Half of the world are the people who are not circumcised. They are Gentiles. They are not Jews. And Abraham is the father of them, of those of them who have believed. So there are people who are uncircumcised, but they, are, they believe Abraham is their father. And then verse 12, and he is then also the father of the circumcised. It's now talking about the Jewish part. Okay, that's, that's you, the Jewish part. He's the father of the circumcised. The circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is your father 
if you are circumcised, and if you have his same faith. And the, Jew, the Gentile one, Abraham is your father, if, even though you are uncircumcised, but he is your father, if you are circumcised. So which means, which means, if you have faith, Abraham is your father, regardless of whether you are circumcised or not, whether, regardless of whether you are Jew or Gentile. You have to believe, have the same faith as Abraham. Then he is your father. And we should be going, yeah, yeah. Why? Because apart from this truth, we who are all Gentiles here, I mean, what right do we have to barge into you know, Abraham's story and be part of the promise that God gave to him? Because we are not Jews, we are the uncircumcised. But because of this truth that by faith, he is your father also. And if he is your father, it means the blessing that God promised to him. We stand to inherit. If you are not Abraham's child, if, you, if he is not your father, then you are outside of this blessing. The promise that God gave to Abraham will not come to you. And so, hey, even though we are uncircumcised, even though we are Gentiles, Abraham is our father. We can be part of what God has promised to him. So all of us here should be very thankful that God has acted this way. That uh, people like us who have nothing to do with Abraham, by faith can share in the promise, by faith can share in the blessing. Okay, but this is the thing, huh? I'll end with this. If it is for people like us, it means that this blessing is also for people who are unlike us. You don't have to be a Jew to be a part of it. Just as long as you have faith. And so, we are here, we are mostly Chinese, middle class, we dress a certain way, we have a certain level of education, and it's so easy to think that this blessing is for people like us. But it is also for people who are unlike us. And so just two weeks ago, uh, one of my students said to me, I'm bringing a friend to um, you know, the, the Christian Union, but I'm afraid he won't be accepted, that people won't accept him. I was like, why? Oh, because he's, uh, you know, he's, 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 got, he's got tattoos and he's blind in one eye. And then when he came, he, you know, the first time in my life, you know, doing student ministry, one of the students puts a packet of cigarettes on the table. <laughs> so that's him. And he said, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm afraid people won't accept him. And so, how would, how welcome would a guy with tattoos who dresses differently from us, who doesn't speak English like us, who's not middle class like us, how would an ex-drug dealer, how would an ex-prostitute, how welcome would they feel here? How welcome would people from different nationalities, how welcome would they feel here? You see, two weeks ago we talked about the culture of evangelism, right? Culture of evangelism. And I ended by saying, you know, I hope we all long that our church would have that culture of evangelism. But my suspicion is that many of us, maybe we don't long for that. 
we, we don't really want people who are different coming. We don't really want to really throw open our door so that, you know, whichever slime ball that crawled out from the gutter, we want to love him and befriend him and say to him, this blessing is for you also. And to show with our lives that it is true. Because now there are many reasons why we don't long for a culture of evangelism. But one reason that this passage raises up is because we think that by our middle class type of education, the way we dress, the status we have, the, the type of people we are, we somehow are more acceptable. We somehow deserve this more. No, it is by faith. God is not obligated. He, by grace, credits the ungodly. And you are ungodly. It is God who credits righteousness to you because you have received it by faith. And the slime ball, the different person who comes out, who joins us, is in that same position. He is not less deserving than you or I. This blessing is for all, and all receive it by faith. May God help us to receive it and to truly tell others about it.